When you come by my house, come down behind the jail. I've got a sign on my door, barbecue for sale. I'm talking about barbecue, the only thing I crave. And a good doing meat would carry me to my grave. Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? We're back again for another episode of Sup Media Reviews. I'm your host, Kiara, and for the first time since this podcast began, I'm actually going to review a dramatic movie. We're talking about the 1991 film Fried Green Tomatoes, featuring Kathy Bates as Evelyn Couch, Jessica Tandy as Nanny Threadgood, Mary Louise Parker as Ruth Jameson, and Mary Stuart Masterson as Iggy Threadgood. This movie was requested by a friend of mine, Omari, and since I hadn't seen it in about 15 years, I figured reviewing it would be a great way to watch it with fresh eyes. So I'm excited to dive into a movie that has a little bit of a heavier storyline compared to some of my previous reviews. But before we get into it, let's talk about some fun facts from the movie. The first fun fact is that Fried Green Tomatoes is actually based on a 1987 novel by Fanny Flagg called Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. The author Fanny actually appears in the movie telling the classroom of disaffected women that they can get the spark back into their marriages. You may recognize Fanny from Match Game back in the 70s and 80s. It was an old game show. The second fun fact is that Mary Stuart Masterson, who played Iggy Threadgood, did all of the bee stunts herself because her stunt double quit at the last minute. Now, y'all, I am quite afraid of bees. I don't know if I'm allergic. I've never been stung before, but they're really dangerous. <laughs> they're like some of the most intelligent insects on the planet who do communal living and all that kind of stuff. And like they will literally die to sting you. That's like a little more hardcore than I ever want to go. So the fact that this actress did this whole B thing herself because her stunt double quit is like, yeah, a little hardcore. And in the final fun fact, we learned that there really is a Whistle Stop Cafe that does indeed serve fried green tomatoes among other Southern foods just north of Macon, Georgia. It's in the actual area where many of the scenes were filmed. After the film became a huge success, the Whistle Stop Cafe set was turned into an actual restaurant and its surrounding area into a tourist attraction. Although they may have filmed the movie in Georgia, the true Whistle Stop Cafe is in Irondale, Alabama, a suburb of Birmingham, where author Fanny Flagg grew up. 
If you want to check out Fried Green Tomatoes, you can rent it on Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, at the time of this recording, it's not available on any streaming sites for free. So I spent $3.79 just to bring you all <laughs> this amazing review. Okay, so I hope you appreciate it. Now, as far as my personal connection to this film goes... Back when I was like 17 or 18, my aunt lived with us and she had this movie in like her DVD collection. I definitely heard of the movie before, but I'd never seen it. So I watched it by myself and I actually really liked it. Now that being said, I haven't watched it since then. So again, watching it for this review was like the first time I had watched it in about 15 years. Kathy Bates is fantastic. And overall, I really enjoy her work. Also, another part of my personal connection to this film is that some of the message from the movie has really stuck with me over the years. It's about taking charge of your own life and not slinking into misery the way that Kathy Bates' character was. Get what I did there? Slinking into misery. I do love stories about strong women or people turning their lives around and, you know, really regaining their strength and like taking agency and responsibility for how their life goes. And that's like a big personal thing in my life and always making sure that I am taking charge of my life and living it the way I want to live it and enjoying it at the same time. So I feel like this movie to a certain extent from the first time I watched it was really empowering for me. So I'm excited to share my perspective on this movie. So let's chat. Okay, so it's the opening scene of the movie and we see an old car being dredged out of a body of water. Evelyn, who is Kathy Bates' character, and her husband, Ed, are lost. They're driving on a road and they're lost in this little town near a railroad. And Ed pulls over at an old dilapidated whistle stop cafe to use a payphone to ask for directions. Evelyn, who I might be calling Evie just to save a little time, is eating a candy bar and she has this longing look in her face and you can tell that she's kind of not happy. So while they're there stopped in this area, she hears the train and the wind picks up as if like a train is going by but you actually don't see a train. So apparently Ed's aunt lives near Whistle Stop and they're looking for her convalescent home to go visit her. And they have like a map in their hands. And part of me is like, how do people go anywhere before GPS? I just don't know how people got around with just maps. Okay. <laughs> Technology is good sometimes. Okay. So eventually they find the nursing home and Ed's aunt, who is Auntie Vesta, throws stuff at Evelyn and apparently either Auntie Vesta is kind of in the throes of dementia and can get a little violent or she just does not like Evelyn. So it seems like she has a problem with Evelyn in particular. So Evelyn leaves to keep Aunt Vesta happy and she goes to this lobby area where this friendly 83-year-old woman named Cleo Threadgood, who's also known as Ninny, strikes up a random conversation with her. She's mostly talking about her medical procedures and Evelyn is already on her second candy bar of the movie, okay? We find out that Ninny is from Whistle Stop and claims that she's only at the convalescent home to be her neighbor's roommate. Her neighbor, we come to find out later, is named Mrs. Otis. So Nini starts bringing up someone named Iggy Threadgood. It's interesting because she's like, hey, have you ever heard of Iggy Threadgood? And it's like, why would this random woman at this convalescent home know who she is? Don't nobody know who Iggy Threadgood is? Older people are interesting. 
<laughs> so according to Nini, she married into the Threadgood family. She married Iggy's brother, Cleo, which I thought was really weird because earlier in the movie, she introduced herself as Cleo. I don't know how she and her husband go by the same name or unless I'm like poorly mistaken or whatever. Yeah. How are they both named Cleo? I don't understand. Anyways, so... According to Nini, sisters Iggy and Ruth ran the Whistle Stop Cafe. She finally grabs Evelyn's attention for real when she says that people accuse Iggy of murdering a man. Because, you know, Evie just thought, or again, I'm going to abbreviate Evelyn by calling her Evie sometimes. And again, that's Kathy Bates' character. Evelyn is really kind of not paying attention to this older woman. I guess she thinks she's just kind of rambling. So, you know, the way you grab someone's attention is saying somebody was murdered. So (laughs) that's when Evelyn's interest is really piqued. So Nini begins to weave this tale about her old life. And she talks about remembering when the truck was pulled out of the river and that Iggy was accused of murdering the owner of the truck. And the owner of the truck's name was Frank Bennett. So she starts basically from the beginning. So the First World War had just ended and everyone was at the Threadgood house getting ready for a wedding. This particular child's name is Leona, who's getting married. And Iggy, who appears to be maybe nine-ish, was refusing to come downstairs because she like kind of didn't want to wear the dress that she was supposed to wear to the wedding. She comes across as like a tomboy and she has really scraped up knees and they finally kind of convinced her to come down the stairs. And one of her brothers is making fun of her. He looks like he's just a few years older than her, maybe 12. And she ends up attacking him for making fun of her. His name is Julian. And again, it's her older brother. So it's obvious that she's a tomboy and that she just kind of doesn't subscribe to all the kind of girly things that she's expected to do post-World War One. <laughs> So she's not a traditionalist, basically straight out the gate. Also, Iggy in this scene looked like Sia to me, or like the little girl who dances like Sia. It's kind of uncanny, y'all. Like, make sure you look it up. So Iggy's older brother's name is Buddy, and Iggy is upset because she just beat up her older brother and everyone's kind of laughing at her and she just doesn't fit in with the family. So she goes off by herself and Buddy, who she's really close to, you know, goes up to her and he tells her a story about how like special oysters create pearls and how being unique is really a gift from God. So he convinces her to come to the wedding and (laughs) Iggy, whose full name is Emma Jean, is actually wearing a suit to the wedding instead of a dress and uses a mirror to shine a reflection on the pastor's face. It's obvious that she's a little troublemaker and just isn't into, like I said, like the traditional thing she's supposed to be doing as like a young girl in that time. So at the reception, we see that Buddy is in love with a girl named Ruth. So Buddy, you know, is walking across the river or whatever with Ruth and his little sister, Iggy. And he tells a silly story about some ducks taking a lake with them. Like the ducks got frozen in the lake and then they flew away and took the lake with them. And apparently the lake is somewhere in Georgia. Just a little silly story to get people laughing. It's a very early 1900s funny story because that's not funny to me. <laughs> Just, you know, taste and humor have changed, I'm assuming. 
So at some point they are over a bridge, Buddy, Iggy, and Ruth, and you know, Ruth and Buddy are making out and Ruth's hat flies away and it flies over the railroad tracks. So it's like a really flimsy hat, has holes in it. So there's like no air resistance really. So the wind is really picking it up and Buddy is chasing the hat and he finally catches the hat, but his foot gets stuck in the train tracks. And he has these shoes on that you have to lace up like 25 times to lace them all the way up and a train is on the way so he is stuck on the train tracks and unfortunately he does not get his foot out of his boot in time to not be hit by the train and Iggy and Ruth watch on in horror as Buddy gets hit by the train and they're screaming so everyone from the wedding reception comes over and yeah Ruth and Iggy witness his death And everyone at the reception comes over to see that he has expired. They come running from the wedding to discover his dead body. It was actually very sad. Also, if I was Leona, my brother dying on my wedding day would be horrifying. We never hear about Leona ever again for the rest of this movie. But it's obviously something that is very hurtful for the family. And for Ruth, who, you know, this is like her teenage love as well. So unfortunately, this is just like a really sad event. So after Buddy passes away, everybody felt like Iggy would be the most impacted. And she kind of was like every night she would sit by the river and she'd only allow a man named Big George to like be around her. So Big George was like a large black man who worked for the Threadgood family. We're going to talk about that later. He basically had to look after her because she really wasn't keen on being around everyone else. So we cut back to Evie and Ninny at the convalescent home. And Evie is already crying from how sad the story was. And she pulls out another candy bar to offer to Ninny. And I'm like, how many candy bars does this lady have? But Ed interrupts them and comes to get Evie. And Ninny is like, hey, you should come back to see me. So in this next scene, we see Evelyn taking this weird marriage class about putting the spark back into your marriage. Now, if you remember from the fun facts I discussed earlier, the class is actually being taught by Fanny Flagg, who is the author of the book that this movie is based on. So in the class, a lady named Missy leans over to make a joke to Evelyn. And I was like, wait, I recognize her voice. And once again, the IMDb x-ray feature comes in handy. Okay, the lady named Missy in this story is Constance Shulman, who you may know as the voice of Patty Mayonnaise from Doug or Yoga Jones in Orange is the New Black. She was so young in this film and she actually looks really different. You probably wouldn't recognize her. So I'm sure you all put two and two together because she has this really distinctive voice. But the next time you watch this movie, look out for her and you'll be like, yeah, that's Patty Mayonnaise. But anyways, Evie stares into the distance longingly and she has a daydream. I didn't realize it was a daydream at first, but eventually I caught on. In this daydream, Evelyn makes a nice dinner and she wraps herself in cellophane and glitter so she can have like this little nasty adventure with her husband when he gets home. So instead of being like turned on by her doing like a nice gesture and being romantic and being like spontaneous, when Ed walks through the door in her daydream, he's like, people can see you. Like, what if I was the paper boy? You need to get inside the house. And he didn't really acknowledge any effort that she put in. 
So right away at the beginning of this movie, it's becoming super evident that, you know, Kathy Bates' character is not happy with her life or her marriage. There's not enough excitement. But then we zoom back to reality where Evie is in the marriage class now and she really just doesn't think her husband will be receptive to her efforts. Anyways, Patty Mayonnaise says that the class is ridiculous and what we need is a lesson in assertiveness. And she also says that Evelyn is living in the dark ages. So basically these classes that are about putting the spark in their marriage (laughs) is not empowering. And so Missy... Again, that's Constance Schuldman's character. It's like, yo, we need to take charge. That's the type of class that we need. And Evelyn just has like a really traditional way of looking at things. And these are Southern women. And that is really important to them to uh, have conservative values, particularly when it comes to marriage. So this time it's real life and Evelyn actually tries to make a nice dinner and greets Ed at the door with a beer and a nice home cooked meal. And he notices that she smells good and she's wearing a nice dress. But instead of sitting down and having a nice dinner with his wife, he takes his plate to watch a baseball game and he just doesn't appreciate her efforts. And she's like, well, what if you you came home and I was wrapped in cellophane, like on some sexy stuff or whatever? He was like, I would check you into the loony band. So Ed is really not understanding her longing in this relationship. He's not really appreciating her efforts. <laughs> and she's just really unhappy. So it's Halloween and we're back at the convalescent home and Ed and <laughs> Ed and Evie are going to visit Aunt Vesta again. And this time they got a dozen of Krispy Kreme donuts. Nanny ends up finding Evelyn in the lobby. And Nanny is saying like the neighbor that she's staying there with isn't doing well and that she'll have to stay a little longer. And then she mentions fried green tomatoes from Whistle Stop Cafe. So that, that you know, sends them back to the story. At this stage in the story, Itchy is a young adult, so maybe 10 to 12 years have passed since Buddy died. Itchy never really got over Buddy's death, and Itchy's mom sends for her, and she kind of randomly meets Frank Bennett, the guy who she is eventually accused of murder. They only meet really in passing. So she introduces herself to Frank as Tawanda, which is like a hood name. That's a hood name, y'all. Tawanda. I used to go to a daycare and one of the people who worked at the daycare, her name was Miss Tawanda. And then the only other Tawanda that I know is Tawanda Braxton. (laughs) But that's a hood name. Now, this story right now, based on my estimations, would be like in the early 1920s, maybe. Who, what they talking about Tawanda in the 1920s? (laughs) I just think that's a hood name. But anyways, when Iggy's mom finally talks to Iggy. She tells her that Ruth is staying with them this summer and is in charge of the youth group at the church. And Iggy's kind of like, so what? Iggy's mom has kind of lost hope because Iggy has really isolated herself and is doing like kind of crazy things that her mom doesn't think that she's really good for her. So Ruth is coming to spend some time with them to kind of help with Iggy and get her back on the right track. So Ruth 
ends up going to a river club, which is kind of like a juke joint. There's a lot of drinking and gambling going on there. And unfortunately, at the time, it's really taboo for all this stuff to be going on. So there's a lot of people there who are unsavory characters. So Ruth goes to this river club. And again, Ruth is like the super church girl who's in charge of the youth group. She goes to get Iggy and she finds Iggy playing poker. And so Ruth takes the pot from poker and leaves, which forces Iggy to follow her. And Ruth basically explains why she's there. Like, you can't shut out your family. I'm here to help you and help encourage you to be better and like make better connections to people and to family. And they have this little minor argument or whatever. And Iggy's not really feeling it. So it's church the next day, I'm assuming. And the sermon is about how the river club is a den of sin. And so Iggy passes by and insults the pastor because apparently there's no sound insulation in the church. And Ruth goes to the river where Iggy is fishing and basically says like, we should spend time together. It could be fun. And so Iggy and Ruth, it's nighttime and they find a train full of goodies and the train starts moving. And Ruth, who is like a really innocent kind of good girl, is like, girl, this train is moving. Shouldn't we get out of here? And Iggy is like, girl, this is where the fun begins. Okay. And so the train is full of goodies. I would say like canned foods, groceries, those types of things. The train starts moving and Iggy starts to throw some of the goods into what appears to be like a homeless camp. It's like a little, I don't want to misuse this term, but it's like a tent city, I guess, for people who are impoverished and they form their own little community on the side of the railroad tracks. So Iggy is throwing off those goods into this community to help them. So kind of like a Robin Hood situation, you know, steal from the rich to give to the needy, that situation. And so Ruth, of course, has her reservations because this is technically stealing. But I think she's just so moved by the fact that Iggy has like a community service element to her that she joins in. So they start throwing stuff off and there are literally people and children running by the train to like pick up the things that they are dropping off of the train. So it's kind of a sweet moment, but it's also very sad to see like this level of poverty. So now it's time to jump off the train because the next train stop is too far away. And Ruth doesn't want to jump off the train. I wouldn't either. But Iggy is like, girl, we got to, you mean, come on or else you're going to walk the five miles back to get back. And she's like, oh, you're never going to do it. And so Ruth apparently doesn't like to be told that, you know, she's never going to do something. So Ruth jumps off of the train first and lands successfully. Iggy jumps off the train immediately after and actually hurts her ankle. So they are about two miles away from home and they literally have to get Iggy two miles down the tracks to a doctor and Ruth basically has to help her get there. And it's one of those things where Iggy is realizing she does need people to help her. And Ruth is learning that she can lighten up a little bit. So they're helping each other. They're building trust and they're, you know, establishing a good relationship. So the next day, Iggy with her bum ankle steals her brother's Julian's keys. Again, Julian is the brother that she beat up for making fun of her when they were younger. And she and Ruth go for a drive. And so Iggy takes Ruth to a picnic near a tree that's full of bees. And she pulls out honeycomb as Ruth watches from afar. And 
Iggy is like covered in bees and she's fearless. And again, this actress actually did this because there was no stunt double available. So I would be scared as hell. A tree full of bees and I was supposed to pull out a honeycomb? I don't think so. It would have been frightening to me. Ruth is watching on in amazement and terror, basically. And she calls Iggy a bee charmer. There's a weird tension between them, almost like a little lesbian tension. But <laughs> there's, nothing ever happens between them from what we see in the movie. But there is this weird tension between the two of them. Later on, Iggy takes Ruth to the River Club for her birthday. And for the first time, Ruth drinks and gambles and plays baseball. And she's having a good time and she ends up getting drunk. So later on, Ruth and Iggy play poker in the river. I don't know how you play poker in the river and get cards wet. Cards in 2023 are not good enough quality to withstand being waterlogged. So I don't know how a hundred years, Jesus. Yeah. A hundred years ago, the playing cards that they made would withstand being in the river, but whatever. Okay. So what we're finding out a little exposition about Ruth that she's the goody two shoes who always takes care of others and always does the right thing. And she's even going to get married to the right guy at the end of the summer. That right guy ends up being Frank Bennett. We later find out. So Iggy is not thrilled that Ruth is getting married. And when Ruth, you know, the end of the summer comes, Ruth goes back home and she sends an invitation to Iggy to come to the wedding, but Iggy does not respond. And she kind of vowed that she would never see Ruth again. And this is another reason why people theorize that Iggy may have been a lesbian with the hots for Ruth because she was jealous of her getting married. Again, it's not super clear, but it does come across that Iggy had some romantic feelings for Ruth, which is cool. I mean, but not in the 1920s. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> so we're back to the normal universe, right? Evelyn, again, this is Kathy Bates' character, is at a house where she's taking an empowerment class where there's like, it looks like maybe 15 women are there. And the aim of the class is to explore their power and their exercise to explore that power is to take off their panties and look at their vaginas with mirrors. That was hilarious to me. Okay. I've heard of it before. I've heard of people looking at their vaginas with mirrors because it's typically not something you can just see from looking at your body, but that was hilarious. The lady literally said, take off your underwear and look at your vaginas together, like in the same room. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> So the story that Ninny is telling is taking place in the 1920s, but I believe Evelyn is, uh, <laughs> I believe that Evelyn and older Ninny are supposed to be modern day for the time the film came out. So it's supposed to be the early 90s in Evelyn's universe, okay? And so even for the early 90s, a bunch of ladies taking off their panties, looking at their vaginas and beers in a living room is hilarious. And like, I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing that for a number of reasons. Like, it feels like a highly personal thing, something that you would want to do on your own time. And also, I don't know if I trust everyone's down there to smell fresh enough for us to have 15 vaginas free in the living room. <laughs> This 
was just so funny to me. Okay, so this class was obviously Missy's idea because Missy said at the previous class, she was like, we need something more empowering. So Missy is there with Evie and Evie asked her to help her with something. Like, can you come with me to help me with something? So the leader of the class hears this and she singles out Evie for not being more eager to take off her panties in a room full of women. And she's like, what are you, you are you threatened by this exercise? You know, do you have a problem with taking off your panties? And she's like, no, I have a problem taking off this girdle. <laughs> she- <laughs> So she was basically asking Missy to help her remove her girdle, but she got so embarrassed by being singled out that she left the class. I hope eventually she looked at her own vagina. I mean, I think we all should do it. (laughs) This was probably the funniest scene in the movie for me. I thought this was hilarious. Okay. So back at Evelyn's house, Ed comes home, he grabs his food and he goes straight to the TV. Evie is talking to Ed and she's asking for them to like do something exciting. Let's go to Florida. Let's enjoy our empty nest. They have, it sounds like one son who went away to college, I'm presuming. And she's like, you know, we need to do something fun, like enjoy our empty nest. And she's like, these classes that I'm going to just really aren't working for me. And Ed gives her some interesting advice. If they're not working, stop going. And you know, that's decent advice. I know men tend to be like, want to be problem solvers when women talk to them about issues that they're facing. And sometimes women don't want a solution, but I actually thought this was decent advice from Ed, even though he wasn't fully paying attention to her or, you know, respecting the fact that she always puts in so much effort to make sure things are right for him. Next thing you know, it's Christmas at the convalescent home and Evie goes to visit Nanny and Nanny has purple hair because there's a beauty college that sends students there to practice on the old people, which sounds like practicing on small animals. (laughs) It's unethical. (laughs) But anyways, Festa doesn't want visitors anymore and Ed won't talk to her about it. It's not obvious, but I'm assuming something is going on with Aunt Vesta and that it's probably dementia. It's very coded. A lot of things are very coded in this movie and you just kind of have to make assumptions. We'll talk about that more later. So Evie is actually there to talk to Nini and ask for more stories about Iggy. So we're back in, you know, again, like the 1920s or whatever with Iggy and Ruth. So after Ruth left, Iggy went back to her old ways and was really isolated and not being around her family and, you know, going off on her own and doing her river club thing. And after a few years, she actually went to Valdosta to check on Ruth. So Iggy has a new haircut now. It's like a kind of short bob. I don't know if this is supposed to be another indication (laughs) of her sexuality or anything, but the haircut actually looks really nice on her face shape. And Ruth has a big old house with lots of stuff in it. And Iggy goes there and claims to be delivering a pie. And she actually does have a pie with her. But Ruth is asking her questions about her life. And Iggy claims that she has a few boyfriends and can't decide on which one. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, right, girl. And eventually... Ruth kind of turns to reveal that she has a huge black eye that's it's on the mend like it's healing a little bit and Frank starts yelling down and Ruth tells her you need to get out of here and Iggy is like I'm gonna kill him me and him need to have a little talk and Ruth is like you need to get out of here I need you to leave so next thing we know 
Iggy's down at the River Club and Grady, one of the guys that's her like low-key suitors, is trying to dance with her. And she doesn't want that. You know, like no one in the town could really tame her. She's not a traditional girl who would go off and get married and do the whole wife and children thing. So a letter comes from Ruth. I'm assuming, I don't know how soon later, but sometime later, a letter comes from Ruth. It includes an obituary of Ruth's mother. Ruth's mom passed away. She also sends a scripture from Ruth 116. It says, whither thou goest, I'll go. Where thou lodgest, I'll lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And this is basically a clever way of Ruth telling Iggy, you need to come get me. Okay, like your people need to be my people. Y'all need to come get me. I need to get the F out of here. Okay, so Iggy gets the message and she and her brother Julian and Big George go up to move Iggy out of this abusive situation. Again, Ruth is married to Frank Bennett, who is abusing her. So Iggy just walks up into the house and finds Ruth. Ruth reveals that she is pregnant. So again, this is basically a rescue mission, okay? So I'm trying to figure out like the reason for this whole change of heart from Ruth. And my assumption is that now that her mother is gone, she doesn't feel the need to stay with Frank. Because I didn't mention this earlier, when Iggy actually went to visit Ruth earlier, when Ruth had the black eye, Ruth's mom was there and was like kind of mean. And her mother was there and I'm assuming maybe living with them. So Ruth's mom knew about the abuse. Or was she a hired hand? I don't know why I assume that was Ruth's mom. Maybe it wasn't. But you know, back then, I'm assuming husbands abusing their wives was just a thing. It was supposed to be a way of life or whatever. And so with Ruth's mom gone, you know, she was able to really let go of that situation. I think her being pregnant made her hyper aware of how untenable the relationship was. So Big George and Julian start packing up Ruth's things and Frank gets home and enters through the back door so Big George and Julian don't see him. And he smacks Ruth right in front of Iggy to see when he sees that she's packing up. And so Iggy climbs on Frank's back and ends up getting pushed up against the wall. So Big George and Julian come in while Frank is like dragging or carrying Ruth up the stairs and Julian is like you best not anger Big George and Big George he's a big dude I've seen him on stuff before I am 20% sure he was in Harlem Nights as the boxer I'm gonna check on that I'm gonna double check okay I just had to take a break to verify that but yes the person who plays Big George, his name is Stan Shaw, and he did play the boxer in Harlem Nights. I thought I recognized him. He actually looks very different between those two roles. But anyways, basically, Julian is like, Big George is bigger than you. Don't make him get crazy or whatever. And Frank don't want no problems. So he puts Ruth down on the stairs. And as she's walking down, she has maybe six or so stairs to go. He basically kicks her and she falls to the bottom of the stairs. That pissed me off. Like that pissed me off. That's so disgusting. This lady is pregnant with your child and you just push her down the stairs. And I couldn't remember what happened in this movie. I was like, did she lose the baby? Like I didn't remember. 
We'll talk about that later or whatever. But yeah, as far as abusive husbands go, Frank is probably at the top of the list when I think of fictional abusive husband. He was worse than Mr. And we'll talk about why <laughs> later on. <laughs> so anyway, they all leave. And Iggy says, if you ever touch her again, I'll kill you. Then she proceeds to call herself the amazing Amazon woman, Tawanda. Again, that's a hood name. Okay. So we go back to Evelyn's universe and we see that Evelyn is with Missy at the grocery store. And Missy, again, the woman who voiced Patty Mayonnaise, is asking if she'll be joining the class tonight where they're discussing masturbation. Missy could not be talking louder about masturbation in a crowded grocery store. That was funny to me. But Evie says she's not going. I think she's taking her husband's advice. So on her way out of the grocery store, some punk kid rudely runs into her and says like, screw you while he's on his way out at the grocery store. So she follows him into the parking lot with her groceries and he like calls her names and she's like, why are you being so mean to me? And her groceries fall to the ground in the rain and she just doesn't understand why people are so cruel and you know, she didn't do anything to him. She doesn't deserve that. So she's crying in the rain and she goes to visit Nini. She's really upset and she's talking about how she feels powerless and how she can't stop eating and you know, I've been there, okay? <laughs> but but it looks like instead of going to the classes, she's going to the convalescent home to visit Nini more often. But Nini tries to encourage Evie and <laughs> Evie is so upset. She's like, I can't even look at my own vagina. <laughs> and Nini is like, oh, well, girl, I can't help you with that. Okay. <laughs> she's basically middle aged and she's going through a midlife crisis. And so Nini asks her a series of questions about what's going on with her. And Nini basically figures out you're going through menopause, get you some hormone medications that will get you stabilized. Okay. So Nini says, and once you get yourself stabilized, go out and get you a job. Okay. You can't just be out here, not being unhinged and not having stuff to do. So that's advice from an older lady. And of course, Evelyn takes it. So interestingly enough, we learned a little bit more about Nini. Nini says that she had a son at an older age, right around the time that she was like perimenopausal. And her child had some developmental disabilities. We're able to assume that because the doctor said, basically, you need to institutionalize him because raising him would be too hard. She named the baby Albert. And once she was able to see her baby, she just experienced so much love for him that she like, you know, didn't feel like taking the doctor's advice about putting him away because of his developmental disability. So she got some of her strength from thinking about Ruth and she was able to enjoy Albert and he was the joy of her life until he passed away in his sleep at 30 years old. So yeah, again, we learned more about Nini. So back to the story of, you know, Iggy and Ruth back in the 1920s. Maybe it's around the 1930s now. Who knows? Ruth has the baby and it's a boy. Ruth had a baby. It's a boy. <laughs> I don't know if any of you all would get that joke. But if you do, let me know in the comments. She named the kid Buddy Jr. Now, let's take a minute to stop here for a little bit. Buddy Jr. Buddy, again, is Iggy's brother who died because a train hit him on the train tracks. Buddy died years ago. 
This is not Buddy's child. Ruth and Buddy really only kissed each other and were like childhood crushes. I'm never naming my child a junior after a childhood crush because I witnessed his death and his family's good to me. I don't care how good his family is to me. I would never name my son a junior after someone who's not his father. I feel like that was inappropriate and weird. And I understand that Ruth feels like she's a part of the family and that she's basically a thread good and she's like a sister to Iggy or whatever. But that's doing too much, girl. Like, that's weird. Anybody else thinks that's weird? That's weird. Anyways, Papa Threadgood borrowed some money so Iggy and Ruth could open up a cafe called the Whistle Stop Cafe and it's near the railroad tracks, you know, the name Whistle Stop or whatever. So looks like that they're doing like a lot of good community work. Again, it's a cafe where people go to eat or whatever. Big George is in the back working this huge grill out behind the cafe and there's an outdoor seating area for the cullets or the black folks. I hate that term. I only used it as a joke and I won't be using it again. I do not call people of color that word. Okay. It's very offensive. So anyways, again, y'all Grady was the guy who really liked Iggy and wanted to marry her, but Grady is a police officer now. And he starts speaking in really coded language, claiming that some folks don't like that Iggy and Ruth are selling their goods to black people. And Iggy says like the people who are part of the KKK and that wear those sheets, if they have a problem, it's their problem. Okay. And they don't even have good enough sense to change their shoes. She recognized Grady's shoes from like some clans rally or whatever. So Grady is a member of the KKK. Mm, unfortunate. And he says basically he'll talk to the boys and he's like, just make sure that the colored folks stay in the back or whatever. So interestingly enough, we find out that Grady spent days drunk and crying in lament after the black man who raised him died. So Grady, who's a part of the KKK now, was raised by a black man and was in despair when that black man passed away. That sounds right. That tracks. There are tons of white children who were born <laughs> during slavery who were actually nursed and raised by black women who grew up to be owners of enslaved people themselves. So, you know, there really is no justice. Black people can take care of you and be good to you and raise you and teach you in your life and you still reject them and think of them as less. So that tracks. We've seen it across history, okay? Anyways, we all know how that goes. So I want to take some time to point out that there's a character that I have not mentioned yet. This character's name is Sipsy. She's an older black woman who's played by Cicely Tyson. She has been throughout the movie, a presence in the movie. She also works for the Threadgood family. And she's a little bit of an older black woman. Much later on, almost basically at the end of the movie, we find out that Sipsy is actually Big George's mother. I don't know why we didn't know that earlier or if I just was not paying attention, but Sipsy is Big George's mother and both Big George and Sipsy have worked for the Threadgood family for years at this point, okay? So Sipsy and Big George work at this cafe. Big George is on the grill, Sipsy is in the kitchen, whatever, whatever. I don't understand Big George and Sipsy's employment arrangement. This is post-slavery, 
So they are not enslaved people. And they worked at the Threadgood house. I'm assuming as like maintenance people and maids, servants, essentially. But I'd be damned if I'm going to cook and clean for your house and mow the lawn and, and do all the support stuff at your house. Then come work for you at the cafe too. I don't think so. I don't understand their relationship to this family. I get that they're trying to say that because Iggy doesn't subscribe to traditional values, which include racism at this time, that they have a tighter bond to them than is normal for this time and place. But if they're working for you at your house, why would you ask them to come work for you in your business as well? I don't understand this arrangement. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. Okay. But anyways, I'm like, are they just working for them in perpetuity because there's job security? I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. So I don't get it. Anyways, forget all that. Let's keep up, <laughs> keep going with the story. <laughs> there's a man at the cafe named Smokey who's having a hard time eating. He's, his hand is shaking and he's not able to like keep his food on his fork long enough to feed himself. Looks like he's like a vagrant, also an alcoholic. And Iggy goes off and, you know, takes him away and tells him the story about the ducks taking the lake again, the little, you know, late 1910 story that's not funny to me. But it's nighttime and Smokey is living in some type of like makeshift, almost the size of a shed. And Ruth covers him with the blanket and he thanks her. And he, you know, basically they're really about community service or whatever. You know, another thing they did in the cafe is that they took some soup over to like a black family that was sick. They're really engaged in community work, which like is super cool. And they're not racist. So they're able to be kind to black and white people alike. So that's neat. So it's a new day and Iggy fries some tomatoes and Ruth is like, those aren't good. Okay. Iggy throws water in Ruth's face and Ruth gets her back. And so they start a little food fight in the kitchen and Grady is in the restaurant at the time. Again, Grady is the police officer and he used to be into Iggy and he goes in the kitchen and he's like, has this mean face on and it comes across as if he's a little bit jealous of the bond that Iggy has with Ruth. And Grady says, y'all stop now before I arrest y'all for disorderly conduct or something like that. And Ruth takes some cake icing and spreads it on his face and shirt. And they're, you know, all laughing and giggling. And Grady says that Iggy is a bad influence. And, you know, he's right. Ruth used to be a good church going girl. And she started drinking and gambling and abandoning her husband and <laughs> all this other stuff since Iggy's coming to her life. So by those days standards, Iggy has been a bad influence on her. But we cut to Frank staking out the whistle stop, okay? He sees Big George singing in the chopping wood and it's nighttime and some Klansmen start burning stuff outside. Frank is in his Klan's uniform in his sheet and he comes into the house where Ruth is staying to see the baby. Smokey comes in the room to see if everything is all right and Frank is like, kind of threatening her and he's like y'all are gonna be back soon and just very very threatening and it's like okay on top of being an abusive husband you are also a member of the clan and this is why he's the worst ab fictional abusive husband that I have seen thus far he surpasses Mista in the color purple <laughs> worst one if y'all know a worse abusive husband than this one y'all let me know okay anyways 
Sipsy is there and she kind of tries to fight him off with a broom or whatever, but she's small and she's older and she's not strong enough. And she's like, I'm not scared of you. And he's like, well, you should be. And so another clansman comes out and says like, hey, it's time to go. So they switch to a different scene. It's still the same time period. And there's one clansman that has Big George outside and he's whipping him like with a whip. Now, this scene takes place probably 60 years, 50 to 60 years post-slavery. So y'all, when I tell you this scene was horrifying to me, I literally had to pause the movie because I was having a visceral reaction to seeing Big George be whipped with like a literal whip. I stopped the movie and like had to cry a little bit. Seeing visual depictions of black oppression is like really painful to me. And that's why I probably won't be reviewing any like really difficult movies to watch. Like I'm not going to be reviewing Roots on here because I don't want to take in that type of oppression. And because I hadn't seen this movie in 15 years, I think I kind of blocked that out. And having to kind of explain how impacted I am by it is kind of tough. So on sub media reviews, I like to keep it light and chill. And this, you know, is pretty heavy for me. So this can be a little triggering. And like I said, I didn't remember this scene from watching it the first time, but it had a big impact on me this time. So let's get back to the action of the movie. So it's late and Grady is at the cafe with Iggy. It's just them. Grady is married to some woman named Gladys. And we find out it's not really important, but a shot goes through the cafe window and they run outside and the clan confronts them for the way they treat their N-words with the hard ER. And Grady says, I'm the law around here and I don't recognize none of you. You all need to let them go. And it sounds like because Grady does not recognize them from the Alabama chapter of the <laughs> <laughs> that these boys must be from a different chapter of the KKK, presumably Georgia, where Frank is from, right? So they let Big George go and Iggy finds out that it was Frank when Ruth tells her that Frank came to visit her that night. And Iggy's like, don't worry, because the Georgia boys which is Frank's boys will be taken care of by the Alabama boys if they cross state lines again, basically. And Ruth makes Iggy promise not to do anything crazy. So it's the night of the town follies. Apparently the town follies is where they put on crazy plays and Ruth is away at a church revival. So Ruth and Grady are doing the town follies where they, like I said, put on crazy plays and they're actually doing it in drag. Iggy is playing the husband and Grady is playing the wife. And I'm like, mm, this is ahead of its time. <laughs> Way to be non-traditional. But Big George comes to get Iggy from the town follies because something's going on. We see Frank come to the house with a gun and he knocks out Sipsy, who again is played by Cicely Tyson. And he goes goes to get his baby. Again, Ruth is out of town, so she's not there to stop him. And while he's about to put the baby in the car, Smokey, the town drunk that they have rehabilitated, confronts him and he gets punched in the face. Next thing we know, somebody, we don't see who it is, comes up behind Frank and hits him in the head with the cast iron skillet. It's the next day and Big George is chopping up some suspicious meat, okay? And a sheriff from Georgia has come to town. Again, this story I have not mentioned 
takes place in Alabama. So a sheriff comes from Georgia from across state lines to look for Frank because he's been missing. So Grady insults the Georgia boys and the sheriff stays for the barbecue because it smells so good. He actually has four helpings of barbecue and he asks Iggy to sit down and he's like, I know who you are. I know that you threatened to kill him because someone witnessed you saying that. And he's like, you can't outrun the law and I will lock you up if I find a single shred of evidence that Frank was here and y'all did something to him. So later in the day, the sheriff swings by Big George's house to question him. Big George and Sipsy are there with a young girl who comes up later in the story, but I don't think we ever learned the young girl's name. So the sheriff is there questioning them. They live in this basically wooden shack doesn't look like a very good quality of living. And this is what I'm talking about. The Threadgood house is a big house, basically a mansion. And y'all are living in this little wooden house. Are they even paying y'all good? I don't know why y'all sticking around, whatever. Anyways, the sheriff basically asks, like, I know you have a fondness for her. Would you kill for her? And he says, no. And the sheriff is like, well, we hang lying in words Georgia as fast as they do it here in Alabama and it's like oh okay all right way to threaten him at least he didn't touch him whatever so Izzy and Ruth sit down to chat it's a new day and Ruth says that she's thinking about leaving because of Frank she's like Frank is going to keep coming after me I don't want to make no trouble we need to get out of here and she's like also if I wasn't here maybe you would move on with your life and find somebody you know to settle down with so Ruth starts questioning Iggy about her whereabouts during, you know, the time Frank was there. And Ruth does this monologue about how she was praying and feeling helpless when her mom was sick and when Frank was beating on her. And she's like, if Frank ever comes back here, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to do something. And so Iggy says, you ain't got to worry about Frank no more. I'm not going to tell you again. Just you ain't got to worry about Frank no more. And Ruth asks, did you kill him? And Iggy says, no. And we don't know who killed him at this point, but Iggy was involved and so was Big George. So who knows? Sipsy could have knocked him out with the frying pan. Who knows? Who knows what happened at this point? So back to modern day or modern day is 1991, basically. And Evie is shopping at Winn-Dixie. Y'all, I lived in Baton Rouge for like eight years. That's the only place I've ever seen a Winn-Dixie, but it brought back memories for me. So I shopped there a few times. Winn-Dixie was actually on the higher end of the spectrum for me. I was like a college student, struggling college student. It was a little bit out of my (laughs) price range to shop at Winn-Dixie. I was more of a Walmart girl back then, but it did bring back some memories for me. So yeah, it's a super Southern grocery store and she sees a man who's leaving a parking space. She had been driving around for a little while and she finally waits for him to leave so she can take his spot. And two girls who are coming from the opposite direction in a Volkswagen bug cut her off and take the spot instead. And when she confronts them and she's like, hey, I was waiting for that spot. And they're like, face it, we're younger and faster. So Evie screams, Tawanda! (laughs) 
Again, Tawanda is like Iggy's alter ego, like warrior woman. And she hits their Volkswagen Beetle over and over again. She just rams it and rams it and rams it. And she is having a great time. She's laughing maniacally and hysterically and she's reclaiming her power or whatever. So the girls come back, I guess, because of the noise. And she's like, face it, girls, I'm older and I have more insurance. And then she drives away. So I'm assuming she went to a different grocery store to get what she needed. But she had a great time destroying their property and regaining some of her power so she goes back to the convalescent home and she tells Ninny about the situation and she's like I never showed my anger because I thought it was bad manners and it's like I grew up in the south and I don't know that a southern belle is never supposed to get angry that came across as a little weird to me but I felt more like about her demeanor than it was about how she was conditioned. But I thought that was a little strange. But she starts going on this rant about how, you know, she'll take on all the punks and the wife beaters and how she feels inspired by Iggy. And she's like, I'm going to declare wrinkles sexually desirable. And Ninny is like, girl, how many hormones are you taking? Like, Evie is on a high from having done that little vehicular damage. (laughs) So Ed comes home and he's like, I don't understand how you hit a car on accident six times. And she's like, "Mm, don't worry about it, whatever. And she makes this low cholesterol meal for him that looks horrible. It's like one sushi with some radishes, a cracker and some sprouts. And she's jumping on a tiny trampoline for exercise. And she's had like this obvious change in her attitude. And Ed is kind of, what the heck is going on with you? Like, you're not cooking my meals the way I used to like them. You're changing what's going on with you. But he doesn't really say anything. Even Ninny's a little worried about eating but we get back to the Iggy and Ruth story okay so five years passed since Frank's disappearance and Smokey actually disappeared for five years as well so he comes back to town five years later and he actually comes across Ruth's son Buddy playing on the train tracks this kid is supposed to be about five years old but he looks older to me I don't know why he looks eight-ish but whatever I don't know why again this is Buddy Jr it's weird to name your son a junior after a dead person that you only kissed a few times, but whatever. It turns out that the sheriff from Georgia was making periodic trips to Whistle Stop to continue to look for evidence after Frank disappeared. So it's five years and he still would come for the barbecue, but also to look for clues. And so far he was failing. So Smokey comes into the cafe and he meets the sheriff and a train goes by Buddy was playing by the train when Smokey saw him and Buddy gets hurt by the train and we see Buddy being carried away and lifted into a car and he goes to a hospital and then I'm like, what the heck is going on? This is the second time somebody named Buddy got hit by a train. What is happening in this town? This is why you don't name your children after somebody who dies tragically, okay? You're cursing them, all right? And I'm like, dang, this boy is dead. I don't know why I laugh so hard when they showed the tombstone. I don't know why that was funny to me. (laughs) I think it's like 1938 around this time. But when I saw the tombstone, I laughed. And I don't laugh when children die, or I think the children die. But it was just funny to me that she named this boy Buddy and he died the same way as the other Buddy. But come to find out, they scrolled down. (laughs) They scrolled down to show the rest of the tombstone. 
And they're actually burying Buddy Jr.'s arm. He only lost his arm in the train accident. So it's a relief and I don't feel as bad about laughing at a child dying. So (laughs) y'all having a funeral for your severed arm is like a kind of millennial thing. I thought that was pretty funny. And upon Iggy's request, they start calling Buddy Jr. Stump so that they might as well be the first people. So he doesn't feel too bad about getting made fun of at school, I guess. Again, this boy is supposed to be five years old, but he looks much older to me. He looks about eight. But anyways, a flood comes through the town and Frank's pickup gets discovered. So Grady comes sternly into the cafe and informs Iggy that she and Big George are under arrest for Frank's murder and that he has to extradite them to Georgia in the morning. And Grady is like, you need to pack up and leave Big George to take the fall because nobody wants to hang a woman. But Iggy has too much integrity for that. And she's like, if you're going to extradite me, you better do it. Okay. And so next thing we know, Iggy and Big George are on trial and Iggy is being questioned by the prosecution, (laughs) I guess the prosecutor in Georgia. And she's really not taking it seriously. He accuses her of whisking Ruth away and killing Frank when he came to get his family. But she says she and Big George were actually at her mother's house and that's their alibi. Unfortunately, we find out that her mom died a year ago, so her mom can't confirm or deny their whereabouts. So the lawyer insults Big George, of course, with racial slurs, and Edgy calls him a few names and... Yeah, she gets reprimanded by the judge. Next thing we see, Ruth is on the stand and the lawyer is convinced for whatever reason that Izzy bribed her to leave Frank. And Ruth says, I left because she's my best friend and I love her. No mention that Frank was a horrible person who beat me and pushed me down the stairs when I was pregnant. Very interesting. You didn't leave because you left Izzy. You left because you didn't love Frank. But okay, we don't get to tell those stories in court, I guess, or whatever. Next up, we see Reverend Scroggins, who is a reverend that has come up multiple times in this movie. And he swears on his own Bible to tell the truth. And he gets up on the stand. He ends up destroying Iggy's alibi, saying that they weren't at Iggy's mother's house. And he says they were actually at his three-day revival. And Iggy was there, which Iggy don't even go to church. I don't know how he formed that lie. And that Big George was there doing the barbecue. And he basically, as a man of the cloth, is vouching for their whereabouts and saying they could have never killed Frank because they were at this revival for like three days. So the judge gets mad and he tells the prosecutor, you don't have a case, okay? A man of the cloth has provided an alibi. You don't have a body. And to me, it sounds like Frank got drunk and drove his truck into the river. And I don't give a good goddamn. (laughs) The judge is furious and it's hilarious to hear him yell at the prosecutor. So the judge dismisses the case. Iggy and Big George don't go to jail. And we find out that the Reverend's Bible was actually Moby Dick. So he didn't swear on the Bible, but he did lie. So he's going to pay for that. At least Jesus is going to make sure of that. But Iggy has to go back to church. (laughs) And if going to church is what it took to get your freedom, girl, you know, go to church. That's basically how Ruth bribed the Reverend into lying on the stand was like, Iggy will come to church if you create this alibi for her. And so he was into it. He was like, you know, this girl has been mocking me her whole life. Again, if you remember, the Reverend was the one who married Leona at the beginning of the movie. And 
young Iggy was like shining the reflection on his face with the mirror. So she's been taunting him since she was a child. So basically he's like, oh, she got to come to church now. I know she's going to hate that. He just wants the satisfaction of seeing her in church. So we're back to Evelyn's world, modern day. And she's yelling, Tawanda! As she destroys a wall in her house. Ed comes home and he's like, girl, why are you, why are you tearing up the house? Wait, why is there no dinner? And she explains that she was going to those classes to save their marriage. And she's like, why should I try when all you're going to do is sit down and watch TV anyway and watch all your sports games? Okay, like, why should I try? So she's just kind of moving on with her life. So we find out that she's now selling Mary Kay. So she did get a job and she runs into Mrs. Otis's daughter-in-law. And we find out that Mrs. Threadgood actually does not have a house anymore because Mrs. Threadgood was saying like, I'm going to stay here and hang out with my friend, Mrs. Otis, until she gets better or whatever. Then I'm going to go back to my house. And Mrs. Otis is like, she ain't got no house no more. The house was condemned and it's torn down. And Ninny doesn't even know that the house was torn down because they didn't see a point in telling her. What the heck are they talking about? Why wouldn't they tell her that her house was torn down? That don't make sense for me. And for the first time, as Evie is walking through this convalescent home, she's seeing all the old people and she's actually really sad for them. She walks into Nini's room and Nini is in her bed and she has long gray hair. She looks like she's aged a little bit more, but her room is nicely decorated and there's tons of pictures and nice plants. And it's Nini's birthday and Nini gave Evie the recipe and she made them and, you know, Nini tried them and she thought they were really good. And she suddenly gets really sad thinking about Ruth. And so back to, it's probably the 1940s by now in Iggy and Ruth's universe. And so things went back to normal after the trial until Ruth lost her appetite one fall. Unfortunately, she has cancer and she really only had a couple of weeks to live. So Sipsy moved in with Ruth to help take care of her. And Iggy talks to Ruth and Ruth starts talking about her last wishes. Make sure Buddy graduates and make sure he doesn't come to my funeral. And Iggy's like, stop talking like that. Like nothing bad's going to happen to you. And Buddy is getting bullied because he can't play ball like everyone else because he's missing an arm. And they go off together and Iggy and Buddy have a talk. And she tries to encourage him by telling some of her old stories. And he's like, girl, I've heard all those old stories before but Iggy's like you know what's going on with your mom right and Buddy you know indicates that he understands and so Buddy and Iggy come back and Ruth talks to Buddy and she's really having a hard time and she basically just tells him how much she loves him and she refuses her medicine from Sipsy and Sipsy tries to give her some ice chips but she doesn't want any and so Iggy and Ruth talk and it's clear that the end is very near and Ruth asks Iggy to tell her a story and Iggy can hardly keep it together. But Ruth is like, tell me the story about the lake and the ducks. And while Iggy is telling the story, Ruth passes away and Sipsy covers the mirror in the room and she stops the clock and she comforts Iggy and Ruth is dead. Very sad part of the movie. Everybody loved Ruth. She was such a sweet person and such a good character in this story. And, you know, she passed away and it was actually one of the sadder parts of the movie. So it was a sad funeral. Everyone in the town loved her and Smokey came for the funeral. And apparently Smokey was in love with Ruth. I didn't know that from watching the movie. I would not have known that Smokey was in love with Ruth had 
the narrator Nini not said it. I was like, how was I supposed to pick up on that? I don't understand. Anyways, when Smokey died a few years prior to Nini telling this story, he only had one possession and it was a picture of Ruth. So again, don't know how I was supposed to pick up on the fact that Smokey loved Ruth. There really was hardly an indication in the movie. Back to Evie and Nini. Evie says that she's afraid of death and Nini's like, I'm not afraid of anything. And so we cut to Ed. He's at home with a nice dinner and flowers and Ed apologizes for how things are going. And... (laughs) Evie is actually replacing the wall that she just tore down because she wants to bring Miss Threadgood home with them. So she's rebuilding the wall to like make sure there's space for Miss Threadgood. And Ed puts his foot down and he says, that's never going to happen. And so Evie gets some gumption from Ruth and she's like, don't ever say never to me. And so Evie basically wants to repay Nini for all the good she's done in her life. So we're back at the convalescent home and Evie's visiting Nini. And somebody's in there taking down Nini's wall decorations. And the nurse tells her that the woman who lived in the room died that morning. So Evie is sad and she's crying and she's like, she just died and y'all are already taking down her decorations and y'all are being so insensitive. And she's crying. She's hysterical. And come to find out it was Mrs. Otis who died. And because Mrs. Otis passed away, Nini went home. So Evie had just missed her and Nini had taken a cab. So it also looks like Evie is slimming down. Kathy Bates looked a little slim in this scene she looked good she had been exercising throughout the movie and so again Nini doesn't know that her house was destroyed so Evie's like "Mm, I need to go get her because she's not gonna have a home to go back to and she does not know that so Evie finally catches up to Nini and Nini is sitting on her suitcase in front of what used to be her house she finds out it was destroyed because she goes to the location and sees that there's no house there so she's really upset she lived there for over 40 years with her husband and she's upset that no one told her that this house was destroyed and she's like I'm old I'm not a child like I can take bad news or whatever and she's like this is the first time I can remember when I don't have a soul to look after and I was like oh god (laughs) there are some people in this world that really feel like their worth comes from being able to care for other people and for whatever reason that is like so off-putting to me Like you are worthy, even if you don't lift your finger to help anybody else. Okay. I feel like people shouldn't derive their worth based on how much they can give to other people. I feel like it's like an excuse to not focus on themselves just personally. I have a little history with that. But anyways, Evie basically tells her, we have space at my house. I've been preparing a place for you. Come live with us. Okay. And it's like, it'll get used to it. Okay. So... We hear the last part of the story and Nanny tells her that Mrs. Otis was actually Sipsy's baby sister. I'm assuming that the little girl that was with Sipsy and Big George in their house was Sipsy's younger sister. There was a huge age gap between them, ginormous age gap (laughs) between them. So I was like, why would it be her baby sister? That's a piece of the story where I'm like, "Mm, y'all tripping. So it turns out Miss Otis was there with Nini 
and Sipsy when Sipsy passed away. And so on Sipsy's deathbed, she told Mrs. Otis and Ninny what really happened when Frank disappeared. So Ninny has never repeated the story until now. So we see Smokey confronting Frank again, a scene that we saw earlier, and Frank punched Smokey in the face, but then he's punched Smokey again when Smokey confronted him again and we see that Sipsy hit Frank in the back of the head with a frying pan. So Sipsy grabs the baby and Sipsy, Smokey, Big George, and Iggy have a meeting about what to do. They can't go to the cops because Sipsy is a black woman and Smokey is a known drunk so his word ain't worth nothing. So again it's this part of the film where we find out that Big George is Sipsy's son. Why didn't we know that? What the heck? But anyway Iggy says it's hog boiling time. And Big George is like, it's not cold enough for that. And Iggy's like, it's hog boiling time. Next thing we see, Big George is on the grill. Smokey has left town. And Smokey asked if Iggy could tell Ruth goodbye. Again, this is another indicator that Smokey had additional feelings for Ruth that we didn't see the whole movie. I don't know if that man had a problem showing that he loved her or that they just didn't demonstrate it throughout the movie. But whatever, it feels a little tacked on to me. But he left town and, you know, he defended her baby. He did right by her. OK, but it looks like they grilled Frank up and served him to the very detective that came to investigate his disappearance. <laughs> That's so gross. y'all. <sighs> I know black people can cook and they have developed the ability to make things that are bad or things that seem like. They're not worth anything. Tastes good. Chitlins, pig feet or whatever. I don't know that they can make human taste good. <laughs> I don't think that's giving us too much credit. <laughs> but anyways, Ninny feels good about passing on her stories. Okay. And she's like, I don't think Ruth ever really believed that Iggy didn't kill Frank. So Sipsy killed Frank with blunt force trauma from hitting him with the cast iron skillet. Cool. Way to blame the black folks. <laughs> Iggy just helped to cover up his murder, which makes her an accessory at best, I guess. Anyways, that part of the story is over. And Ninny feels good about passing on her stories because these people will be live on in Evie's memory. And I'm sure Evie going to tell somebody the story. At least she's going to tell Missy. And so she's, you know, Ninny is like, the thing that I've learned in my life is that the most important thing in life is friends. And they pass the graveyard. Again, this area where Ninny lived is a whistle stop. And they see Buddy and Ruth's graves. And Ruth's grave has a note on it and a jar of honey. And the note is signed Beach Armor. And Evie is surprised to see that Iggy is actually still alive. And she's like, I hope they see her soon. And her and Ninny, you know, exchange this meaningful look that suggests to me that Ninny actually is Iggy. And come to find out that there are people who disagree on whether the ending suggests that Ninny and Iggy are the same person. There are literally online theories that cite several reasons why Iggy is and is not Ninny. Personally, it comes across to me that Ninny is Iggy and that she changed some details of the story 
in order to make the story more compelling and like she wasn't telling it about herself like she was telling it about these characters but you all tell me what you think is Nini Iggy or are they two separate people because there was nowhere else in the story that Nini actually mentioned her husband Cleo that only came up in the beginning of the movie and he was never a part of any other action in the story. So let me know what you all think. We find out that the town kind of died after Ruth passed away. The heart of the town stopped beating when the cafe closed. And so the movie ends with Evie and Nenny walking back to Evie's car. And presumably Nenny goes to live with Evie and Ed. And hopefully it all worked out. Or Evie divorces Ed. I don't know. Who knows? So that's the end of Fried Green Tomatoes. At the end of every episode, we ask and answer the questions, is this movie worth a rewatch and does it hold up? I'm gonna say yes and yes, okay? The movie has two parallel storylines that are quite interesting. It's a story about friendship and sacrifice and perseverance and standing up for yourself and there's personal transformation, there's tragedy, there's comedy, there's drama. There's even drama around the ending of the movie based on whether or not you believe Nitty and Itchy are the same person. There's fan theories about Itchy being a lesbian who's in love with Ruth. Even beyond just the movie itself, there's some intrigue around the actual storyline. So I think that's pretty cool. Overall, I think it's a well put together film with an interesting story. But personally, I don't think I'll watch it again. As I mentioned earlier, it was a little bit triggering for me, particularly the scene where Big George was being attacked by the clan. And I also am not fond on the way Big George and Sipsy were used in this movie. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around what their employment arrangement was when it came to the thread goods. And they can't be classified as magical Negroes because they did not have magical powers. But I think it was like a little bit of a cop out to have Sipsy kill Frank on Ruth's behalf, as opposed to Iggy or Ruth killing him herself. So didn't really care for that in the story. They came across a little bit as, as scapegoats a little bit, but whatever. Besides those few things, I really like the movie. And who doesn't love a good cannibal story? That's like a good, nice little twist towards the end. On Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave Fried Green Tomatoes 76%, while the regular folks gave it 84%. Overall, I think the critics went a little hard on the film, but that's to be expected, especially when there are racial issues in a movie. The regular folks are probably more on par with what I think of the movie. They gave it an 84, but you all let me know what you think. How would you rate this movie? Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to my review for Fried Green Tomatoes here at Sup Media Reviews. Next week, I'll be reviewing Fifth Element featuring Bruce Willis with a special guest. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.